when I was a sophomore in high school, my dad um, went to prison for uh, embezzling a, a bunch of money, he went to Big Spring, Texas, and he was there in the federal penitentiary for about a year and a half. And I was on my own because my mom was living in Wichita Falls. And I sure as hell wasn't going to go live in Wichita Falls. I love Wichita Falls, but I love San Antonio. I was, I love San Antonio. I wanted to be with my classmates, right? Welcome to another episode of Talking Pictures, a podcast dedicated to discussing film, filmmakers, and film trends. Hosted by me, James Faust, Artistic Director of the Dallas International Film Festival, produced by Commerce House and brought to you by DIFF. We're having a conversation with Mike Jones. Mike Jones is an award-winning uh, screenwriter. He was the writer on the movie Soul, and he also was the writer on the movie Luca, most recently nominated for an Oscar. So Soul won the Oscar a few years ago. So I've known Mike for almost 14 years now. I'm excited to have him as our first guest on the uh, podcast. And so we'll be talking about his life and how writing process and what, what's it like working for Pixar? Because, I mean, they win everything. They seem to have no there's there's no dents in their armor they're the they're they're the eaching of animated films and soon they'll be talking more about just being films so they're really amazing can't wait to talk to mike about that and more so uh stick around joining me now is mike jones screenwriter and not the rapper mike jones mike thanks for coming on the podcast with us yeah it's a pleasure good to see you so i'm just we're just talking before earlier in sort of the waiting room. And I was just wondering, I, when did we actually meet? Because I'd always heard your name. I'd been doing festivals at that time. I guess it was 2006, 2007. I'd heard your name, but I never knew the Mike Jones. So I guess we met, what, about 2007? Yeah, was it, um, I don't know where I was working. Was I working at IndieWire? And uh, Michael uh, Kane reached out and said, I'm starting this film festival connected with AFI. And um, will you come down and uh, um, uh, to the inaugural? I think I and I went to that very first one. Yeah. And uh, I think yeah, I think I was working. I was either working for IndieWire or Variety at the time. Oh, I can't remember. I think it was IndieWire. Yeah. No, it was be. Variety. Sorry. Maybe it was. I don't know. I think it was a Variety. I think it was Variety back in the day because you've had the most amazing career. Uh, path and this is really funny so uh, and then someone told me when we did meet I was like Mike Jones yeah he's from Texas like what like North Texas South Texas so talk about were you were you born here in Texas yeah yeah I was born in San Antonio uh, and I raised there too and um, I went to school at I had a some it took us because my grades were so terrible I went to uh, um, UTSA University of Texas San Antonio for a semester got my grades back up, transferred to the University of North Texas in Denton, and um, kind of got into the film scene a little bit there with a, a couple of, I fell into a group there that liked eight and a half, and like they liked all these art movies, and we would yeah, see them yeah. at, the, at the library, at Bob's library. No, is it Bob's? I remember, I can't remember. What, but with, we would wear these like headphones that were like vices on our ears, and um, and then we would talk about it afterwards and I go like, wow, I never grew up with any film like that in, in uh, San Antonio. So it was, uh, and then I, it, we decided as a group to all apply to film school to various film schools all over the United States. And I got into NYU and I said like, oh shit. Yeah. I want to go. Can I curse on this thing? I don't think. Sure. I yeah. I read good. <laughs> Here it comes. And um, uh, I got into NYU and I just pulled every favor I could and took out every loan I possibly could to get to uh, that school. 
So, uh, but yeah, my, uh, my education, my sensibilities, they come from that upbringing in Texas, you know? Well, this is, that's right. So you started out and this is great when you were, you wanted to be a filmmaker, but your paths seemed to take this turn into film criticism. How, now how'd that go? I mean, I remember I used to say this cause you're not a failure in one in anywhere, shape or form, but I remember that old thing, uh, uh, good teachers teach others what react. I don't know. It's like, I don't know how you got from, hey, I'm going to be the next, you know, Fellini to I'm going to talk about films with Peter Bart. <laughs> so. Well, I uh, um, I came out of school wanting to be a cinematographer, actually. I wanted to wow. shoot movies. And so I shot like a bunch of uh, short films. Um, I shot my professor's documentary and I was really hoping to be a cinematographer out of there. But my screenwriting teacher at NYU um, took me aside and said, like, you write well, so you ought to think about that. And so um, that got into my brain. I started to write scripts, but, you know, it's not, it's really not easy to break in as a screenwriter. So, but I could still write and I still loved movies. And so I wasn't a critic necessarily, but I was, um, I was a reporter. I started out as a, as a, just a freelance reporter for Filmmaker Magazine and then became their um, managing editor. Um, and then it just, that was a really, fertile time in um kind of the indie film movement particularly in new york city at the time that was like late 90s and that's when indiewire started indiewire started out of the filmmaker offices on the in the dga building on 57th street i got to know eugene hernandez and mark rabinowitz and oh, yeah. uh, those guys and uh helped them kind of build indiewire into um into kind of what it is today well, no, actually, they so I left before it um, was sold to Penske, but um, I don't know. There was just this. There, there was a lot of like wonderful, uh, like indie indie films coming, indie film and art films coming together in New York City, and we loved being a part of it. You know, we loved going to those screenings. We loved talking about afterwards. You know, so um, and I just kind of got it in my head. You know, I just if I can write, like what maybe I can write a screenplay. So I wrote four or five screenplays before one was finally um, got some notice. And uh, then I was able to start making a living at it. So, and was the, was the first, the screenplays you were writing, were they animated features or were they live action? No, yeah, and Pixar is Pixar's interesting. They don't hire any animated uh, writers, they, animated feature writers. They only hire, um, you know, writers that can write drama and um, that have a comedy bent too, because, you know, Pixar can animate anything, but what's harder to do is story. You know, Pixar spends more time on story than they do on animation. Like they can animate a movie and an entire movie in probably eight, nine months, but it still takes four years or maybe three yeah. years to get that story locked down. We could, we could talk about that in a minute, but before, um, uh, I think it was, it was, uh, I, I just, I, all of my early scripts were set in Texas. And one was actually made called Even Hand that screened at South by Southwest oh, years ago. And it was set in San Antonio. And that helped me get a job um, ghostwriting for uh, Matt Dillon, who oh. wanted to make this movie called City of Ghosts in Cambodia. And he needed, a, he needed somebody to polish the script. So I worked with Matt on that for, uh, for a number of months. And after that, I was... I had enough money and I had a manager, I was able to stop um, uh, being a, you know, phone reporter and do it, do screenwriting full time. 
I remember that city of ghosts. Well, wow, that's good to know. I love ghost writers. I always hear they're so, I mean, I don't know what kind of NDA you guys sign for those things, but there are a lot of ghost writing going on in Hollywood. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, I wouldn't, I, I'm only a ghost writer because I didn't get, you know, the writer's guild didn't deem my contributions, you know, credit worthy, you know, so, so it's not, you do, you're kind of, sometimes you're kind of told, you know, you're just coming in to help. But um, what's great about the Writers Guild and it being a guild project is that credit is uh, determined by the Writers Guild, not by the director or the producer or anybody on the production. The Writers Guild um, keeps that power. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, I didn't, you know, I didn't get a, a credit on that one, but it went through a, you know, an arbitration process. And um, that's kind of fair, although... People would probably say it's not fair. No, they probably wouldn't. It's like, hey, you, you as a ghostwriter, I always think people are on screen going, I wrote that. Yeah, yeah I wrote that. Yeah. No, Matt Dillon is saying, he's, yep, yeah, I wrote those words. Uh, not, not uh, you know, Cooper B. Shaw. No, it was me. It was me. <laughs> That's cool. So, get, so you get these screenplays up. And so now getting to Pixar, getting early on, how soon before they went, hey, we like what you're doing. Join our ranks. Yeah, that. So I was uh, after City of Ghosts. I was a screenwriter for most of the other studios for a good like 20 years. And then um, I wrote it, during the strike. There was a Writers Guild strike. And uh, I went back to um, journalism because it was the only gig I could get. And I and I was uh um, uh, so I worked for variety in that case, I was the managing editor of film festivals for variety. That's, and I think that's where I got yeah. to know you and got to know, uh, Michael and Sarah. And, um, uh, but I always, and, and then, and I love that job. It yeah. was all I had, like, I, I was going to a different film festival every two weeks. I was seeing movies, meeting filmmakers. Like I had stopped writing for like a good year and a half. I just traveled the world and watched movies. I loved it. And then like um, the f a new company came over and bought Variety and the in, in, in the round of layoffs, the first guy they're going to lay off is the dude going around to different film festivals and <laughs> with the corporate cards. So yeah, I was laid off and I was, I panicked and I pulled out of my drawer an old um, script called uh, The Minotaur Takes a Cigarette Break. And it's a, it was an adaptation of a book that not many people know, but it's about the Minotaur working as a short order grill cook in a steakhouse in, in Wichita, Kansas. And, um, you know, he's kind of a shell, the monster he used to be, and everybody kind of makes fun of him. And, but he still has that, he still has that um, kind of buried aggression inside of him, that very buried wound in a way. And yeah. I just loved that book. So I adapted it. I gave it to my agent. My agent said, like, nobody's going to make this. And I could just send it out because I don't know what. And sure enough, that one took off. People love that script. And it, wow. I don't think it will ever get made. But um, it got me a ton of work. And somehow Pixar got their hands on it and said, um, would you come up and uh, help us on a couple of projects? And so I just came up on a uh, as a kind of independent contractor at Pixar. Most, most writers here are independent contractors, meaning they're just hired for that project. So uh, I came on and I just kind of uh, stayed <laughs> and um, I was here for, as an independent contractor for a good, what was it? A good six years, five years before, as I was working with Pete Doctor on Soul, um, 
after about a year, he asked me to come on as a staff, um, staff writer. So, uh, and I said, I kind of made the calculation. I said, you know, I could, I could write, um, maybe three or four scripts a year for Hollywood and none of them get made as, as has been, you know, the trend in my career, or I can stay and write one movie for three, four years. And it probably be pretty great. And, uh, so I did it and, um, yeah. and, and then, and we made soul and it's, um, it's just one of the highlights of my, uh, of my career. I don't know if I'll ever, uh, if I'll ever get a chance of being that close to that, that gifted of a filmmaker and also that gifted of a partner in Kent powers, you know, and, yeah. um, uh, and then I, and then I went to Luca and worked with Jesse Andrews and uh, Enrico Casarosa and I, and, and it was the same. I go like, you know what? I'm so happy. I'm going to be here, you know? Let's see. Let's, let's let's talk about Soul because I, so I'm I see it come out. I mean I see the trailer and I go, oh yeah, it's gonna be cool. Oh, Jamie Fox is in this movie. Jamie Fox from Terrell, Texas. And I'm thinking Pete Doctor, who I guess it was the very first. We have an award with this local animation company, uh, Real Effects Studios down here, called the Tex Avery Award. And Pete was the very first recipient, second recipient. Sorry, he was the second recipient. The first one went to Brad Bird. Uh, and then the next one went to Pete, and I got to meet Pete Doctor. He came out and did a screening of Up, and there was standing room only in this theater at 10 o'clock in the morning, and he had a great time, and he gave this howling wolf statue. So I've got to spend some time with Pete. Super, super nice guy. I think three-time Oscar winner now, I think. Yeah, but who always say, but I've still got this howling wolf from Dallas. I'm like, thank you, Peter. Uh, but he's such a, uh, just an amazing, nice, and super tall uh, fellow. So I'm just wondering what's like working with him and Kemp. I've been looking Kemp up and I'm thinking that must have been a magical uh, team to work with. So what was that process? Like, how do you start? It was, I mean, where does the initial conceit come for Soul? Was it Kemp going, I have this kind of idea, or did you all work together on it? I just really, what a magical film. Well, it be Pete had just come out of Inside Out, and he was um, he was looking for a new idea. And uh, I got a call that like Pete was just staring at a blank page, and he and he just wanted somebody to sit in a room with and and shoot the shit. And um, I like doing that. I like sitting in rooms with directors and filmmakers and hearing what their idea is, and just saying giving them scenarios of like, well, what if it's this, or what if you match this character with it, or what if we. Um, what if we throw a wrench in the machine, like midpoint right here, what would happen there? And it just, what I, what, what that does is it just gets that filmmaker then, um, kind of sparked and alive. And, and then we get in front of a whiteboard or a cork board and we just start mapping out what that early movie could be. And so Pete didn't really have much of an idea, except that he wanted an idea set beyond space and time at a place where souls are given their personality. And he didn't know if it should be like a soul um, who is up there, who's kind of like uh, John Belushi in Animal House, like just ne never wants to graduate, like looks down on earth, says like that place looks like hell and just doesn't want to go. Mm -hmm. and, or a soul who just never got their shot and is stuck up there and is trying to get back to earth because they feel like they, um, uh, they didn't fulfill their purpose in life. And I said, like, that sounds like, we should we should do both because both of those characters will push each other right like it'll take it'll take the 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 soul who hasn't um found that purpose to convince the soul who doesn't want to go down there 
to go. And therefore they kind of will convince each other uh, and they'll learn by the end of the movie of what they really are, um, what they really want to do down on earth. Right. Yeah. And um, it was, it wasn't a musician. It wasn't, it wasn't jazz based. It was an actor on Broadway who um, got his big shot in a revival of death of the salesman. And we thought we were so clever death of the salesman. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, we just like, we couldn't really get behind that as being an actor. And so when Pete and I just kept talking and talking about it, we just thought about like, what if it's a musician and we both love jazz and what if it's jazz? And at that point we realized um, we needed some help. And so we brought in Kemp and um, Kemp was just magical in that he was able to, um, he was able to contextualize that character and that affected the plot in such a kind of beautiful way. And it became this really kind of great partnership between us three. And also, you know, the editor, um, Kevin Nolting, was a big, played a big part in the building of that movie. And um, uh, uh, Kristen and, uh, and Trevor, the heads of stories, we had a great team. You know, it's kind of one of those great moments where the stars align, you know. It wasn't an easy movie to make, and we lost a year in making it. But really? um it's uh it i i love the experience well like like so you were saying before about doing 20 years and maybe have something done but maybe work on one thing for four and guarantee it's done so how long was soul from you know for, for coming out of inside out to screen so i guess maybe like six years it was yeah uh, it was five years four five i think it was five it's crazy and most of that's writing or most of that's story development. And like you said, they, they, they animate it pretty quickly. Yeah, they can, you know, the, that, that's what I was saying earlier. They can animate a movie really quickly here. I mean, granted, you still have to build a lot of those assets and you have to build the look of the movie, which takes a long time. But most of that time is spent in story, meaning, um, you know, we will write scripts and then we will chop those scripts up into five page segments and give them to story artists, to storyboard. And then we will put up the movie in just really crude drawings, and we'll, um, you know, uh, we'll we'll hire scratch actors and put temp sound on it and and sound effects, and then um, we'll watch it and we'll see if it works, and uh, we'll do that over and over and over again for years. Oh and it is, uh, it's exhausting. <laughs> it seems like incredible, though. I mean, it's it's incredible and it's exhausting, and sometimes it's infuriating, and it's and it's incredibly. Um, it's a gift to have that much time. And I'll say like, what's if every, everybody asks like, what's the secret of Pixar? I mean, we have great artists here. We have great writers and directors, but I would say primarily we have time. You know, we have the time to, we're essentially shooting the movie again and again for four years. And even if you had a live action movie that you could shoot for four years, you'd probably figure it out. You know, we threw a lot in the, in the trash. You know, yeah. I mean, I was thinking like, what, what movie like was shot over that many years? That's really great. A live action movie. I was like, I go back to boyhood, you know, yeah. Boyhood's boyhood, about the boyhood was shot over and over and over again. And I would imagine I haven't talked to Linklater about it, but I would imagine like he just had time to think about it, you know? Yeah. And that's why it came out as good as it did. I, I wonder, you know? So I, Pixar, the Pixar process to people, what's the secret of Pixar? Because I was looking, I was doing an Oscar preview uh, here in town not too long ago out of synagogue of all things and before the Oscars and they're going you know what three of the, they said all three of these are Pixar movies well no it's Pixar Pixar Disney Disney and so 
Do you see, and, and again, this is one of those pesky pokey questions, a distinction between Pixar and Disney films? Because it, it feels recently that that is no longer, I, you can't really tell the difference unless you're a giant red uh, panda bear that might may or may not be going through some sort of pubescent thing. But it's just, so I'm just wondering, do you see an actual difference there in the Pixar method versus what Disney's doing? Or are we just making great product on both sides? Um. You know, Disney Disney changed its the way that it makes its movies. When um, John Lasseter and Ed Catmull went down and um, kind of took over that process down there, so I think they brought a lot of Pixar process into the Disney animation process. But I'll also say that Disney animation has its own kind of fantastic culture. Um, Jen Lee runs that place. Um, I like a lot of those directors and writers. Um, it's it's different in that I will say it feels like um, it is it is a revered institution, Disney Animation. I mean, it's 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 responsible for essentially paving the way for animated features, right? Yeah. And so there's a lot of history in that building. Um, there's a lot of history in that city, right? Um, and Pixar, I guess, if there's any difference, is that Pixar. Um, is still kind of relatively new in this game. I mean, we've uh, Toy Story was what 26, 27 years ago, something like that. Um, so we're st we we've developed our own culture quite separate from from Disney. And even though John and Ed wanted to take some of those qualities down to Burbank, um, we 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 kind of put you know we covered in amber our own process we're not part of la necessarily when we go down to la to show our movies we all feel like we're all kind of wide-eyed uh, like i i went to the oscars for for luca and um you know a lot of those people are, i don't know if they're they're used to it but but part of that town is you know klieg lights and glamour and red carpets that's not our life up here at all, <laughs> you know? So we're, when we go down there, we're kind of stunned and, um, you know, a little, a little dizzy at it yeah. uh, because we feel so insulated essentially from the entertainment industry as a whole, which I think helps us a great deal. Well, yeah, the, their office is up there because I've, I've had a great opportunity to visit and, uh, and go into some no photography areas. Okay, this is it. So when I was, the first time I visited, they were working on Brave. And it hadn't come out yet. And there was this whole, and I'm looking at wall pictures going, oh, this is going to be amazing. This is going to be really cool. And then it didn't, and to your point earlier, it didn't turn out to look like anything I was looking at and anything that I saw a year and a half later when it came out. And so it's like a big playground of ideas uh, at there. So what's it like? Do, you're probably working at home due to the pandemic probably more often than not. But what's it like? Is there a bullpen writing situation up there? Or is it just you go into the office and you throw things at a wall and it hits? I mean, how's the writing process there? Well, it's pro it's it's both. I mean, it's um, it's extremely collaborative, which is not for every writer. You know, writers are used to being by themselves in their smelly offices, you know, with, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I, but here you, um, you're given some time to write, you're given some time to incubate, but at some point, somebody's going to knock on the door and go like, Hey, what are you working on? And <laughs> you got to come out and you got to pitch it. You'll get like 37 different ideas. People will tell you what they don't like. People will plus it. People will go like, what if it's this? And then you come back with what you thought was a pretty solid, you know, sequence just ripped to shreds and you have to rebuild it right 
by the way, that happens on a story artist level, that happens on an artist level, that happens over and over again. So it is um, the, the, the criticism is always, well, at its best, it's there because the studio wants that filmmaker to make a best version of what they can make, right? And which is which is a little different than um, you know showing it to anybody. Sometimes when you get notes, you're getting notes from people who have a different film in their mind. Pixar really tries to kind of keep in what that filmmaker wants to make, which is why you know Domi, um, I felt did such an incredible job with Red. I loved yeah. like Turning Red. I thought that movie was just fantastic and one of the most satisfying like third acts that we've made in ter- that giant kaiju fight between <laughs> between uh uh Faye and her mom I just just loved and you know we we screen all these movies for uh, for ourselves first in a big you know crew uh party and w- people were on their feet like loving that like so there is um and that was because I feel Pixar um, nurtured Domi's voice in particular, right? Voice we haven't seen before, you know, incredibly like fresh, fantastic, like wonderful voice filled with life, but also not afraid to make a movie about a girl like coming of age, you know? And that's what it's like, you know? And um, uh, so it is, um, uh, everything is kind of in service to that vision of that, of that filmmaker. And when you're a writer here, that's what you are serving. You're a lot, you certainly, you know, asked to bring in your own ideas. Yeah. But a lot of writers here also, um, they find success here in applying structure to um, some of these directors' kind of whimsical ideas. Uh, because that's Pete Doctor, right? Pete Doctor will come yeah. in with like a whimsical idea about a house that flies away with balloons. And our job <laughs> is to like, that's great. What now we need to put it in something we can watch. And the best directors here would go like, okay, that's great. Like, how do we, how do we plus that and plus that? So, yeah. So I was, uh, I didn't mention this earlier, but I told my wife, so two movies made me cry a few years ago. You wrote one of them, Soul and Onward was the other one that made me ball. And then you made me cry again this year as I was prepping for this Oscar day with Luca. And, um, I, I'm I'm a sucker for a father son uh, and coming of age thing, and I'm watching this thinking, and I see your name, and I went, "All right, where's Mike pulling from from Luca?" Because it feels it's so lovely and sad and beautiful and affirming at a time when I think I needed to watch that movie just as much as I needed to watch Encanto. I needed to watch Luca. To go, oh, yeah, man, yeah, there, there's hope. So I'm just wondering, because it says story by Mike Jones. <laughs> and I'm watching this thinking, is there any life of Mike in this movie? Or is this just Mike going, you know what? I need to tell a really good little boy story about, you know, family. Well, that that one, you know, the story was actually by Enrico and, um, and Jesse. Okay. Uh, and I came in uh, to write the screenplay. So... All right. A lot of that story was in there. I think I helped kind of solidify some of the more emotional moments. But where I come into that movie was, um, you know, when I was uh, when I was a sophomore in high school, my dad um, went to prison for uh, embezzling a, a bunch of money. He went to Big Spring, Texas, and he was there in the federal penitentiary for about a year and a half. And I was on my own because my mom was living in Wichita Falls. 
And I sure as hell wasn't going to go live in Wichita Falls. <laughs> I love Wichita Falls, but I love San Antonio. I was, I love San Antonio. I wanted to be with my classmates. Right. And so I lived in my 79 Chevy Suburban for a little while. I ended up at um, my aunt's house, um, lived with her and I held down two jobs and um, just waited for my dad to get out. And when he did, I had enough money and I got us, I put, got an apartment for us. And um, while my mom um, is still uh, traumatized by the fact that she felt she abandoned me and I loved it. I loved being on my own. I loved the responsibility of trying to find ways of putting gas in my car. Um, I loved like staying with my friends. I loved the freedom of it. And um, I think that's what I brought into particular into Luca and Alberto and that in in that friendship. My friendship became really strong, a lot stronger, but also just it was the first step into adulthood. I don't think I could have gone to NYU had I not had maybe those two years on my own figuring it out while also trying to go to college. And so I uh, I kind of brought that into it that the joy of being on your own, um, the immense responsibility of being on your own, but also the the need to have kind of that, you know, best friend next to you, that love next to you to help you through some of the harder moments. Yeah. Wow. That's, I did not know that. That's a, uh, that's good. I love to hear these stories where the stories come from because I mean, people think, Oh, you write what you know, but it's not exactly what you know. I mean, do you ever follow that advice, write what you know, but you can learn about anything. Yeah. I, I, I don't know a lot. <laughs> Look, I, I, but I feel like I've experienced a lot. So um, I know what it feels like to be lonely. You know, I know what it feels like to be on your own. Uh, I, I, I know what it feels like to lose somebody um, close to you. You know, I, I, my dad passed away in my arms a few years ago. So that, I, that experience I brought into soul in particular, how you know, when, when Joe is playing his life and he puts all of the um, mementos on the, on the piano and he plays that tune, I wrote that scene from uh, going through my dad's boxes of old stuff. And these were things that I remember growing up as a kid. And every single one had a, had a charge to it as, as you held, you remembered it, right? And um, it moved me so much that I came back and I said to Pete, like, I want to write a scene where Joe remembers his dad and remembers his life um, through 22's experiences. And if there's a way of having 22's experiences kind of mesh into what Joe's life is like, and then at the end of that scene, he comes through it with this realization that um, living is, is, is the reason for life. There's not a purpose to life. The purpose to life is life itself, right? And um, so... That is not something I feel like I kind of knew, but it's something that I knew that there was a feeling behind it. Yeah. I couldn't, I, I, for in soul in particular, I don't know that I, um, it took um, me writing a seed, but then other artists and Pete and Kemp and Trevor um, who boarded that particular sequence, bringing their own experiences to it. And that's when that collaborative uh, flower opens. And, uh, it is one of the scenes I'm probably most proud of and maybe will ever the, the maybe one of the most important things I've, I've written, you know. And it was it was something about soul that I um, and this is 
you know, and I, I went into it a little, I went a little bit with trepidation because I was thinking of Jamie Foxx. Okay, so it's it's sort of the first uh, black African American Pixar foray, and then Pete Doctor's running in. I'm like, man, are there any black people? Oh, oh Kemp. Okay, cool. Right, this makes sense, but. The, one of the beauties of the film is how it is about the soul. You know, it's sort of it's not that it transcends race because it is a, it is a part of that story, and I think it really leans into it from the jazz perspective, et cetera. But to tackle that subject of the soul and just you know humanity as all in a way that I really love, like you know, we're all this and how we're all this together, and how you made everybody these little. Uh, I, that was one thing I was like I love the design. Like everybody's the same little thing, really. I mean, there's not a difference of little things, all little Casper things. And it's really, really fun. So I appreciate that. And the fact that you guys, and this is something I want a, a little larger conversation about animation in general, how, how animation, and I don't speak to this, you're able to tackle these pretty heady subjects and Pixar and even Disney to a point, I tackle some pretty heady subjects. And you wouldn't imagine that you would do that animated. And I'm just like, I think, I don't know if it started with Toy Story or when that happened, but I mean, there's, you know, I'm, I'm not watching, you know, no offense to Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, so, uh, but I'm like, that's not deep. <laughs> that's not, that's, it's fun. It's a princess story. Now, it feels like animation has moved into a place of, you know, putting itself up there with every other Best Picture nominee it could be. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, it, it's, uh, animation is, is, it's not a genre, you know? Yeah. Animation is just, uh, animation is a medium. You can make any number of movies through animation. I mean, Studio Ghibli, Us, you know, Disney. Um, uh, it, it's not just cartoons. We love cartoons, mm -hmm. but um, and there's some wonderful kind of cartoony moments in Soul. But uh, we, I think Pixar was founded on the idea of a of of a bunch of people kind of wanting to um, say something a little different rather than, you know. Uh, the the kind of typical slapstick that maybe animation was relegated to at the time, right? And so these were these were um, filmmakers who uh, who really wanted to say something um, like deep and and close to them, right? I mean, Andrew Stanton, you know, was going through you know these feelings of of being kind of a little bit of a helicopter parent to his son, and those feelings came out. And um, Finding Nemo, right? Um, you know, Pete uh, wondered like what happened to his uh, teenage, uh, his teenager um, who was so bright and lovely, who then became a teenager and kind of got moody and dark. What happened? Uh, Inside Out was born out of that, you know. So we we these are it's it's therapy for us, and um, which also makes it hard. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's, there's a certain. I always think writing, uh, especially writing for the screen, can be you know, extremely cathartic. Cathartic. Sorry. Yeah. And you're like, oh yeah, get it out there. But then also, as my wife always like, is this person is that person sick? No, that's a story. That's not them. <laughs> like just, I don't think, you know, if you're writing seven, you're going, oh my god, that person's a killer. I don't think they're a killer. I just think they just wrote a really dark story about some other stuff. Oh, yeah. uh, Who's inspiring you like now and beyond? Like what, like, where are you going to go see? Who do you go and think, oh man, I wish I could have done that, but damn, I'm like, I'm glad I saw that. Um, I think like uh, when I saw Sean Hedder's um, uh, Coda, I, uh, there was, there were moments in there that I was, that took my breath away. 
Yeah. Um, there was uh, like I, I I find I'm gravitating a lot toward moments, you know, in movies, because I'm just astounded of like how they're able to do that. There's one moment in there where and everybody knows it, but where yeah. you know they're they're watching their daughter sing. They don't understand really what's they, they kind of understand, but yes. they're talking about like they're talking about what they're gonna have for dinner that night, and then he turns and the sound drops out, which is something that we were told in film school never to do. We were mm -hmm. told you can't just have no sound. You can have like wild sound of the room, but you can't have no sound. You can't just put like plastic leader over the over the audio head. And they did, you know, they put just plastic leader, it's, you know, it's digital, but I'm dating myself, you know, but they, it was just dead silence as he looks around and sees other people moved by her. And it yeah. took my breath away. I could not believe it. I just was, um, I was stunned. I loved, um, I loved that the opening credits to Drive My Car don't start until 40 minutes into the movie. <laughs> insane. I know. It's insane. But like <laughs> something opened up in me. It's like, oh, like shit, we weren't, we, we were watching a prologue. Oh. <laughs> and now the movie's starting. And I thought was like, I, for me, that I again took my breath away. Just loved the choice in that. I loved, um, you know, but I loved also Dune. Like these are all the recent movies. I I loved what um, what he did with Dune. Uh, I thought that was just again like some of those um, the sound design alone. Yes. Way. I mean, the movie that's that's our modern. Not to say. Uh, from a story perspective, like that's a modern day Lawrence of Arabia, just with the desert motif. Still, I'm just watching it. I couldn't see that I, you know, it was on HBO Max, and I think, all right, I'll go. Watch. No, I went to the theater, the biggest theater I can, found it, and I sat there with my mask on in the theater in a, ro in a room with twelve other people, and yeah. we're all like, "This is absolutely needs to be seen on this screen." It was, it's the biggest thing I've seen since probably Avengers, and that took twenty years to get there. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I remember um, also. I don't know if you remember, but you know, it screened in Venice first. And yeah. um, there was a critic who, like, everybody was wondering, like, what, what, what it was like. And there was a critic who trashed it mm. and, uh, like, famously trashed it. And so I read it and I sent, sent the review to a couple of my friends. I was like, oh, gosh, like, that's, that's too bad. I was really, like, I love that filmmaker. Like, I love, what's, I hope, I hope this is wrong. And man, am I so glad it was wrong. And man, was it wrong. Yeah. It's, it's really raw. I mean, I have some nitpicks with the film from a, yeah, because I love the books. And like, and my brother, like those, I think it was the first book I gave my brother to read when I was in college. I think he was in high school. And, he's, and he read it all. Like, I just finished it like two years ago. But it's, it's, it's a long, it's a lot of stuff. But I remember thinking, it's just, it's just, I don't say it's old fashioned, uh, you know, Technicolor type movie making, but it's got that sort of feel, that vibe of grandness, that love that you want to experience, and it just takes you over. And I don't know, I I really enjoyed it. And to Sean Heater's uh, part about the uh, about Coda, yeah, that scene, that is up there with Sidney Poitier turning around. They call me Mr. Tibbs. I mean, that scene is going to go down in history as something that people show at the Oscars going forward, if anybody's watching the Oscars anymore, I don't know, <laughs> going forward as this is cinema. And yeah. so I'm so happy for her and what she did. It's just. Yeah. I mean, magical. it's it's also a great example of what, of what we always are trying to do. And Sean was a writer at Pixar for, for a little while as well. Really? That's how I got to know her. Um, but that's what we try to do at Pixar with our sequences was, was, you know, if you remember, like that sequence starts off as they're there just to kind of support her and clap and be polite, right? 
they're it, time goes on and they realize like, gosh, what are we going to have for dinner? And then it completely comes around to the other end when he realizes what she's doing to other people and that he's not able to hear. And then it leads, of course, to the scene where he he desperately wants to hear it yeah. or feel it or experience in some way. And then he, you know, he has that, that they have that moment in the truck. I just like, I thought, what a fantastic build, you know, because yeah. I don't know where it's going. And that's yeah. the, you know, that's the thing that you always have to remember as a writer. It's it's really not about entertaining the audience in as much as it's about surprising the audience, right? And the only way you can really surprise the audience is if you surprise yourself first, right? So we're always trying here, and I'm always trying with my work. It's like, we've seen enough movies. We know enough about structure. We know enough about story that sometimes it could just feel mechanical. But where can we throw in that wrench that surprises us? Where can that character take that left turn down that wrong path that makes the audience go like, oh, shit, I didn't see that coming, right? Yeah. I Just to... Um, uh, the most recent thing I watched, I haven't seen the second episode yet, but the first episode of Moon Knight mm -hmm. is, I don't know what the hell's going on in that show, <laughs> but I don't care because I'm so into it. Like, I'm so interested of what I, Oscar Isaac, I think is doing a fantastic job in that. But like, I don't know what's going on, but I still like want to keep watching. So that's what I feel like I'm gravitating more toward these days because you can put like, I'm sure you the same way, James. Like you, we can sit in front of movie and be like, "Oh yeah, well we know what's going to happen here and here and here and here," until nothing surprises us anymore, and we're probably yeah. mildly entertained. But to be surprised and shocked, yes. like those are the ones. That's right? the best. People always, say, "What do you look for in a movie?" And I go, "I'm looking to be something different. I'm looking yeah. to be surprised. I'm looking for. I mean, I watch a thousand movies a year, and it's like, yeah. where do you want to go? Like, I want to go somewhere that I haven't been." in a different way. And that's the movies that stand out to me. I mean, yeah. I'm not, I'm not like talking about putting an all black cast in Hamlet. That's, that's, that's been done at whatever. I'm talking about not doing something in there and taking that one scene and making it new and yours. And yeah. yeah, I love that. I think, you know, the first time I really felt that was when I watched um, Unforgiven and, uh, and the theater. And I went there cause I wanted to watch a Western. And yeah. I was like, and I came out of it pissed off, hating that movie. I was like, that wasn't, that wasn't a fucking Western. Like what? And I was just railing about it, trying to talk to my dad about it, trying to talk to everybody. I was like, that's not a Western. And then the more I talked about it, the more I realized that I, I, I wasn't mad at it. I was, I was upset because it surprised me, but yeah. man, did I like, so I went back and watched it again. And I, and I, and I love, it's one of my favorite movies of all time because it just flips everything on its head, right? It, it's the best Western. I, I would argue that it might be the best Western because it's exactly, it's what you expect. I'm going to watch Clint Eastwood do this thing. You're really breaking down all these tropes, guys. I don't, I, you're not doing it right. This is, no, he's supposed to be, you can't kill, what? It's like one thing after another isn't to lore and it works. It, it yeah, works so well. Yeah, it's hard to kill people, you know? Yes. Yeah. It, it, I love how they how they broke all that stuff down. It makes stormtroopers make more sense. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they can't fire. You yeah. probably can't talk about it. Uh, maybe you can. I don't know. Are you working on anything that you can even mention, or do we just want to keep well, going? You can't yet. Okay, uh, but it's going to be cool. It's going to be great, uh, and it's something we haven't done before. And um, I am uh, I'm really excited about it. I'm also really tired. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not tired. It's just like uh, um, every you, I think people sometimes think 
oh God, they, they do it so often that it must be easy here. And it is never easy. And we run into um, so many roadblocks and so many dead ends with all of our stories that um, the moment you think you have it, it just takes 48 hours to realize you don't. And um, it is, uh, it's just about buckling down and, you know, putting, putting even more work into it. So, you know, we're kind of in the middle of it right now. We, uh, we haven't started animation. We're just in that story churn right now, trying to figure it out. But um, uh, I'd love to talk about it when, when it's ready. I'd love to be, talk to you about it. I think you would like well, it. My plan is to get up there, get another tour of the giant lamp and ball Pixar up yeah. there and then hang out and see things I'm not supposed to see and then not bring them back at all. <laughs> it's the secret stuff. stuff. Mike, it's been a pleasure catching up and thank you for joining us. I mean, you're our first guest on the podcast. So, oh. yeah, so you, uh, you broke us in. So I really appreciate it and uh, good luck with everything coming up. Thank you. Good to see you, pal. Hope you guys enjoyed the conversation with Mike Jones. Uh, there was some really good stuff in there, especially if you're a writer, to learn the process and what goes on at Pixar, the collaboration, all that. Uh, it's really great, and I really appreciate his time and you know just being with us on our very first podcast. Talking Pictures comes to you from the Dallas International Film Festival, a.k.a. DIFF, with production stuff by Commerce House. Our theme music was composed by Fresh Squeeze Music. Find us wherever you find your podcast. I'm James Faust. Thanks for tuning in.